Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to teach a class, uh, write a dissertation, raise a child, um, get his PhD, and eventually survive the coronavirus pandemic. This week is the 12th episode in our ongoing series about work and play in the Industrial Revolution, and it is the last episode uh, in which we will be dealing with a big bunch of content. I might return next week to talk about uh, the course as a whole, or I might not, depending on how things go. Um, If you have not started listening to the series already, I encourage you to go back to episode one and get kind of a gist of what everything's about. You're not going to miss out on any content that's going to really like make this any less enjoyable or edifying for you, but you'll get a little bit of background about the kind of themes that have been running through a course, uh, the course as a whole. Um... Just uh, to let you know, at the at the top of the episode, rather than, than the bottom, um, uh, this is a hard time in the lives of academics, uh, not because we've all lost our jobs, although many of us had, but because it kind of uh, makes our futures uh, uh, really more precarious than they already are. Um, and because of that, I'm, I'm trying to think of ways to like get you know, do non-academic things with the academic skills I've built up over the past you know, six, seven, eight years of uh, becoming a historian. And one of those is, uh, can I make money from this podcast? And so I've set up uh, a Patreon, um, like every other white dude in their 30s who has a podcast. But you can find this Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash making of a historian. So far, there are zero patrons, which feels a little embarrassing uh, to keep it up. Um, but if you listen to this and maybe you want to, you know, change that, go on to patreon.com slash making of a historian and you can potentially become my first patron and get my, uh, you know, eternal gratitude. So, This episode is going to be about sex, sex work, and sex as play. Uh, I thought it would be interesting to end uh, the the class with sex, uh, because, I mean, sex happens at night. It's something that completes the day often. Um, But also because sex is something in which we can see a lot of the tensions about some of the you know, the moral aspects of of play, and, and, and also see some of how uh, uh, these categories of what is play and what is work and what is not play and what what is what is okay for somebody to do with their bodies changes over time in a really visceral way and in a way that 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 still stays with us today. Um, so first, I'm going to be talking about uh, you know sex and history generally, um, and at the outset, I'm going to just give a gigantic caveat here that there are people who all that they study is sex and gender and. Uh, they have incredibly sophisticated analyses and, and do a ton of really interesting, great, and complicated work. And I'm not one of those historians, so I'm going to butcher a lot of stuff. And I'm going to give you just my um, relatively surface-level view of some of these changes and interactions. Then we're going to be talking about uh, heterosexual sex um, in general, uh, uh, within marriage. Uh, then we're going to be discussing uh, uh, a little bit about masturbation and people's worries about masturbation. Um, and finally, uh, we're going to be closed, uh, closing with talking about female sex work and the, and the image of the Victorian common prostitute. Um, so let's start off by talking about sex. Um, 
just like it's weird thinking about your parents having sex. It, it it's sometimes strange thinking about people in the past having sex. When you think about history, it seems like it was a really unhorny time. Um, it, 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 it's something shocking when you realize that, you know, the people in the 19th century and the 18th century and 17th century, that they all had sex and they were all got horny and they all did it in their weird and particular ways. Maybe it's because, uh, you know, as you get older, you get less sexually attractive. And so you stop being thought of as much as a sexual person. And so people in the past seem less sexual. Maybe that's it. Or, 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 or maybe it's because when you look at like images of people in the past, they're dressed in, you know, 19th or 18th or 17th century garb. And we can't, you know, get over that leap and find them sexually attractive. Maybe that's what makes it hard for us to think about people in the past having sex. But I, I think that there's actually a deeper and, and kind of important reason why the idea of, of, of a sexy past is, is difficult to understand. And that's because of this, this thing that historians often talk about, which, which goes by the really obtuse name Whig history. This is not W-I-G history, but W-H-I-G. Whig is in the British political party which obviously clarifies nothing for you because it's it, that term. Why, why is there a particular branch of history associated with the, um, you know, dead party, the Whigs? Well, the idea of Whig history is that in Whig history, you tell the story of a, you know, a particular historical story as an inevitable and cumulative development towards a particular goal. You know, the big wig historians would 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 tell these lovingly detailed uh and 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 empirically grounded stories in which everything would lead up to the inevitable development of the political uh, uh positions of the wig party. And so we tell ourselves a story that we today are particularly sexually liberated that we today that something that defines us, makes us different from the past, is that we are more free, that we have more sex, that we uh, dress more lasciviously and skimpier, that we have fewer hang-ups. And because of that, we compare the now of today with some sort of before this history, this black and white 1950s, when husbands and wives slept in separate beds, when gay people were closeted, when people wore jackets and hats all the time, when the sight of a woman's ankle was something um, pornographic. And so we have these two moments, the sexually liberated present and the sexually repressed past. And you have those two moments, and it seems like you have a moment of Whig history where every moment that you get closer and closer to the present, you get more and more sexually liberated. So the further and further back that you get into the past, the more and more sexually repressed the society must have been. This is obviously not the whole story. Um, the story of people's sexual lives is not a straight line. It's not even a rollicking hill. It's more a giant furred mess. And you know, the thing just to, 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 to remember, the big important lesson is that people in the past were as horny 
as we are. They were as lascivious. They liked to have fun. They liked to, to do bad things. They liked to mess around. They thought of themselves not as, uh, you know, uh, uh, cold and, and, and uh, 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 prudish, but they thought of themselves as, in their own ways, attractive and sexual and uh, pleasure-loving. Sexual practices, of course, change over time, um, particularly about what we consider normal, right, moral, correct. Um, and I just want to, to, to upend further this idea of, of, of there being this inevitable development for, you know, the, the, the present being the most sexually liberated and sexually active period on hi human history, when we know in, in, in our own experience, our own life experience, that that's not true. The current generation, we often think, uh, the, the, the current young people, the Zoomers, the, the, the people who are uh, leaving high school and entering college today, we think of them as, as you know, because of this story of a cum cumulative, ever-developing sexual liberation, we think of them that they must be incredibly horny, that they're always having sex, that they are having sex in, 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 in new and different ways. Well, they are having sex in new and different ways, but that they're having more sex than ever before. But this is simply not true. Even with Tinder, even with the rise of online dating, even with the ease with which people can now find a date, the generation that is now entering college has, uh, you know, if you can believe the survey data, is having sex less than my generation did. And I'm guessing that my generation had sex less in our 20s than my parents' generation did. So it's not a straight line. So when we think of British history in the 18th and 19th centuries, this is often colored by uh, the work of the late 19th century, which was a you know comparatively prudish and buttoned up time, at least amongst uh, the bourgeois sorts of people uh, who wrote history and, and, and edited books. Um, because of this, we kind of see the past often through a balderdized lens, through a, through, a, through, a, through a selection mechanism that shows us only what we thought the people in like the 1870s thought was appropriate. Those bits of history that were comparatively horny or wild or were kind of selectively forgotten. The long 18th century was comparatively sexually and morally free, especially around London and the big cities. People had a lot of sex in sometimes public places. They had orgies. They got drunk. They they had sex in parks. They uh, uh, you know cheated on their wives and husbands. They uh, uh, had sex with multiple partners at once. They kept mistresses. There was a wide variety of common sexual practices that were not seen as particularly immoral. Um, the Victorians looked back and they thought that their grandparents and great-grandparents were particularly ill-behaved and licentious. And, and in part, their, their, their selection of the, the 18th century that we remember makes us think of the 18th century as some bewigged, uh, you know, sexless time. But it was, the, you know, precisely the opposite. Anyway, let's talk about the 19th century because it seems that this class has been talking mostly about the 19th century story. Um, and first, we'll talk about sex within marriage, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, heteronormative uh, standard by which we, we, we're going to compare everything else with. 
So the big thing when we think about men and women having sex is uh, the sexual double standard. Uh, men and, you know, they were thought to have the right to sex from their husbands. Um, and it was okay for men to sleep around. Uh, they were thought to have a particular amount of sexual energy that was, uh, you know, important for them to burn off. Um, in fact, uh, sex was supposed to be a cure for a lot of male health problems. Uh, uh, a lack of sex was blamed uh, on ca for causing, uh, say, depression, headaches, fatigue. Uh, sometimes young men would sometimes try to connive to get prescribed premarital sex from doctors, you know, for, for your health. Hey, mom, it's okay. I'm going to go out on a night on the town because the doctor said that I need it for my depression. Um... A big part of the, the sexual double standard that we're going to talk about when we talk about sex work is, is the sexual double standard when it came for, to prostitution. When prostitution was uh, 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 made illegal and, 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 and prosecuted, it was the women, or the prostitutes, who were uh, prosecuted, not the men who bought their services. Um, now it's not totally how you think about it. It's not. It's not the the idea that the Victorian woman just kind of you know as 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 the idea goes lay back on 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 her on her bed, closed her eyes, and thought about England um, when uh, it was time to have sex. No, women were thought to have sexual urges. It was just often thought to be unlocked by marriage. Um, in fact, a lot of people thought that that women eventually got. Uh, hornier than men, that 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 women's uh, lust was unlocked by marriage and increased, whereas men's kind of stayed the same or declined with time. Um, and within marriage, uh, sexual pleasure was something that was important for couples. People wrote about it in their love letters to one another. They discussed it with their friends and family. It, it was important. Uh, it was also thought to be important medically. For a long time, a lot of doctors thought that, that you could not conceive a child unless uh, the woman um, had some form of sexual pleasure. Um, and people were, like today, uh, concerned about, you know, what that sex would lead to. And a lot of people uh, used contraception. Sometimes they had little handmade uh, condoms made out of sheep's bladders, uh, and increasingly in the 19th century, condoms made out of vulcanized uh, rubber. And so there were a bunch of different kinds of contraception, like diaphragms, vaginal douches, sponges. Um, and there were a number of publications and, and working class radical reformers who tried to encourage uh, the use of condoms uh, and other contraceptive devices, especially for the working classes. Why? Well, because working class women were, were often really uh, 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 put upon by their challenges of, of uh, being pregnant, giving birth, and raising children. We have to remember that in the 19th century, pregnancy was uh, incredibly dangerous for women. And, and when we think about, you know, the problems of childbirth, we often just think, oh, like death, right? Like you think about the differences between today and, and the past with, 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 with pregnancy and childbirth, and we often just have that headline fact that in the past, more women died. Um, but I think that that doesn't even tell us the full story, because what we have to remember is that childbirth, even, even when you survive it, is an enormously traumatic experience that can really, up, you know, change your body quite dramatically and often permanently in ways that that are uh, range from the subtle to the dramatic. And 
when you do not have access to contraception and get married in your 20s and are expected to pump out double-digit numbers of children, that does uh, real damage um, to the woman's body, even if it does not lead necessarily to death. And so some of these working class uh, radical reformers who were pushing contraception wanted to do it to free women bodily from um, the difficulties of raising children, not to uh, make them all spinsters, and but to, to give them the choice. Others went even further and, and suggested that women like men should just be able to have sex for pleasure without worrying about that pleasure leading to a crying infant. Another way that people in the 19th century pursued family planning was through abortion. Um, people thought that the fetus didn't wasn't really alive. It wasn't really a fetus uh, until it started to move, and still you could until you could start to actually feel it kick, which is a, a couple uh, months into the into the process. Before that, it wasn't really alive, and because of that, there were lots of home remedies and patent medicine that people used to bring on periods that we now understand as abortifacients, things that actually cause abortion that make a, a, a person, um, you know, expel a fertilized embryo. Um, these were often, you know, prescribed or bought from from uh, uh, pharmacies, or people would mix them up at home. Um, when you get uh, recipe books from the time period, often you will have recipes that help people, you know, with women's issues and getting rid of unwanted troubles. And the the language is 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 really, you know not necessarily unclear, but the language is very indirect in telling you what they do. This was not something that people would would talk about uh, uh, very openly about, but it was something that was really, really commonly done. Another thing to talk about with, with sex is solitary sex, uh, masturbation. Uh, it's one of the commonly held things that we know about the 19th century that people uh, thought of masturbation as a public health crisis. You know, you've, we've seen those weird 19th century photos that purport to show the damage that is done to an otherwise healthy and promising young man by the sins of self-abuse. Self-abuse didn't just cause hair to grow in your hands, which is what... Uh, I guess they told you in the 1950s, but it could cause depression, nervousness, dementia, mental breakdown. It was thought of as a real public health problem. And it was a public health problem that that preyed upon the very young, not the very, very young, but teenagers and young children. And people sought, just like they seek today to reform young children's drug habits, people sought to stamp it out early so that young, innocent children did not set on the long, hard path to immorality and vice. Um, So, there was a particular worry that children would learn about masturbation at schools, at boarding schools. Why? Because all these young children of, of many different ages were put into schools all at once, and they often slept together in the same bed. And the th- thinking was that if one of those kids had the hideous practice of masturbation, they would teach the other children how to do it, and thus encourage them to do it, and thus create like just a little wanking-off like world that would lead to all those young boys uh, uh, having a life of dissipation. This led to particular real changes that were really important for people who lived at boarding schools and related to them. Um, One was that, you know, 
boys were moved from sleeping in the same bed together to being uh, sleeping in their 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 own separate beds that were all walled off. And so they had a little privacy so that, you know, ostensibly, if you would have one boy practicing the sin of onanism, it wouldn't spread by by demonstration to the other boys. But it also led to a particular kind of education that, that, that sought to regimentalize the young boys days so that they would be, you know, they wouldn't have any time to jack off because they would just have so many things to do. And at the end of the day, when they might, you know, want to touch themselves, they would be so tired. This is the, you know, this sounds silly. It sounds extreme. It sounds weird, but this was the, uh, 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 the, environment that created the 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 uh, uh world of, of of so many organized sports it was a school like the rugby school that pushed a particular kind of muscular christianity that these sorts of changes were pushed it was for morality that you got young boys and organized groups and kept on pushing them and pushing them and pushing them into you know throwing balls and stuff so that they wouldn't have spare time and spare energy to do bad sexual things on their own if you're curious about this uh, uh, my advisor tom lecur has an entire book about the history of the problem of masturbation why why does masturbation suddenly become a problem for people uh when it you know doesn't seem to have been a problem at any time since, and it's something that frankly I haven't yet read. Don't tell him. Um, I should read it probably. Anyway, let's let's turn from from sex as something pleasurable or something that's a problem to sex as work. Um, it's unclear how many people worked in sex work, but it was probably quite a bit. Um, you know, it, it, we can't get big statistics, but prostitutes were a, a really um, common sight. Uh, in both people's daily experience and in um, when you're just walking around. You would probably see prostitutes as you walk through the streets. It was part of the visual environment of the streets. Um, now, it was also kind of expected sometimes that men, particularly middle-class men and, and often upper-class men, would have a period of whoring around. Um, they would sow their wild oats when they were young and unmarried. They would have this pent-up sexual energy that they would need to release somewhere. And if they couldn't release it through masturbation, well, then you know, an acceptable place to release it was through the use of prostitutes. In the popular imagination, it was these uh, young middle and upper class and sometimes older middle and upper class and sometimes very older and middle upper class uh, men who seduced naive young working class women into the life of prostitution. But uh, historical research has shown that this is probably not true. It seems that the women who became prostitutes did so in the words of Judith Walkowitz, quote, voluntarily and gradually. Um, we should understand prostitution then as, as work. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm putting it as a capstone to this episode, because it wasn't just a way that people had fun. It was a way that people, mainly working class women, worked and made money. Um, it was part of uh, one of the strategies that people would use to get by in a time when the working classes were incredibly um, financially and materially strained. When we think of it as dissipation, when we think of it as a moral story, when we think of it as young, naive women being seduced by wily, immoral men, uh, it frames it in perhaps the wrong way. Instead, we should think of it as 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 one way of making money against uh, amongst many. Um, 
Sex work was perhaps uh, more fun, but was certainly more remunerative than other forms of work that were available for young women at the time. And often um, women would resort to sex work when other forms of work were not available or as a way of garnishing their wages. People did not just suddenly become prostitutes. Often they would dabble in prostitution here and there as ways of filling in the gaps of their salaries or of just getting a little bit of extra money to have fun. Um, many of these people we could characterize as a class as, quote, the unskilled daughters of the unskilled classes. And they were often poor. They often had straight social nets. They came from poor and large families. And so they didn't have other ways of filling in the gaps when they needed money. Um, and if you were young and pretty or just young or just available and willing, prostitution was an available option. Tellingly, a lot of prostitutes were orphans. They did not have the social safety nets, the family safety nets that might have provided them, not necessarily with moral instruction, but with money and help in times of need. Now, when we look at, at, at the working class population, when we, see, when we look at prostitutes' biographies, we see that women moved in and out of sex work strategically. Uh, they didn't just fall into a life of dissipation, get stained by vice, and then never leave. No, sometimes uh, sex work was part of a, a, a life cycle for many young women. They would do sex work at a particular stage of their life when they're young, just as some people would go out to service. They would learn, you know, make money, maybe gain some material possessions, and then settle down, and then perhaps move on to sex work when things weren't working out as well as they were before. Now, calling prostitution work is in some ways a political move. The people who I'm reading who are calling, you know, talking about 19th century sex work are part of a feminist, uh, uh, you know, labor-friendly uh, uh, political movement that wants to make us think of sex workers just as any other workers, not as people to be reformed, but laborers who are probably, in, you know, going to be exploited by their employers, not morally, but, but, but materially. But sex work was not just another kind of work. Sex work was something that people in the 19th century did worry about. It was something that, that, that they you know, had period interest in, but also something that they thought of as, as, as a persistent problem. In Britain, there were no licensed brothels like there were in other parts of the Western world. Uh, in Britain, prostitutes, you know, plied their own trade. They would rent houses. It was not done as much in the open as it was in France or even in, in parts of America. And there were deep fears about prostitution. First, there were fears about the effect medically that prostitution had on people, particularly amongst the soldiers. In the middle of the 19th century, Britain's imperial might began to slip, although not to slip that much. Uh, and one of the reasons this was pinned on was the poor health of the soldiers in the British Army and Navy. And part of this was blamed on the, you know, the fact that you know, maybe true, maybe not probably true, that a great deal 
of the British armed forces at any time were unable to fight um, because they were suffering from venereal diseases. This was in part a self-inflicted problem because the army had a rule whereby it said that there, there could not be more than 10% of the rank and file uh, who could be married at any one time. So if you were a young uh, army person, you, you wanted to get married, you had to ask the permission of your commanding officer, and they could not give that permission unless uh, there was less than 10% of of your group that was not already married. And so well, naturally, a lot of soldiers uh, took to prostitution. Prostitution was really big in a lot of garrison towns and venereal diseases, which were very real and very scary and very debilitating, did likely spread from prostitutes to soldiers, to prostitutes, to soldiers and back again. This led to the notorious passage of the Infectious Diseases Acts of 1864, 1866, and 1869. These allowed for the forcible medical inspection of any woman who was suspected of being a prostitute. Just keep, you know, what does that mean? Any woman suspected of being a prostitute could be examined for signs of venereal disease. Um, this was to protect soldiers from venereal disease. The idea was, hey, stamp the problem out at the root, the root being, of course, women. If found to be infected with venereal disease, women um, could be imprisoned in a lock hospital, uh, which was a, a, basically like a prison hospital from anywhere from six weeks to six months, during which time they would be subjected to horrible medical treatments to cure them of this venereal disease. These were eventually overturned uh, uh, because of the actions of, of many early feminist reformers, uh, who rightfully said, why are only women being controlled in this way? Why is it women's bodies that are being examined and prodded and douched? Why is it women who are being blamed for the money and choices of men? Why is it men's pleasure that sends women into lock hospitals? Another worry that people had was in the nature of the prostitute themselves. There was the idea uh, in this time period, as we were know of, of, of the pure and innocent child, and there was the fear that in cities, prostitution was claiming young children. People, uh, especially after the work of the journalist William Stead, became incredibly concerned about child prostitution. Stead produced a book called The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon, which argued that there was a really, really widespread trade in child prostitution, especially in London, which was the modern Babylon of the title. Uh, Stead said that you could basically buy young virgin girls, 12, 13, 14 um, for only like a couple pounds. And to prove this, he actually bought a virgin girl himself. Uh, he bought a young child uh, on the black market purportedly for prostitution, although I've read uh, accounts that say that 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 it wasn't like this. But I, I you know, what's clear is that there were, in fact, uh, quite a number of, of child prostitutes in Britain. Uh, I saw, when I was reading up about this, I saw some sort of uh, uh, statistic that said, oh, look, only 5% of the women in lock hospitals in a particular date were under the age of, 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 of 15. Well, that's still 1 in 20. And when you think about it, like, 
getting in a lock hospital was not was was a little difficult you have to be like seen as a known prostitute there was probably a lot of 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 young children who who were engaged in prostitution what does this tell us about work and play well well like so many other things the world of prostitution was a world of its own there was a subculture a working class female led subculture of prostitution work with its own lingo its own trade its own you know gear tackle and trim as jared manley hopkins puts it uh, and this was something that was that was run by the women themselves in, in in many instances that provided people with with employment with money with self-identity with with values and like so much of work during this time period it also destroyed people destroyed people's bodies ate them up and chewed them out it 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 ate up the young and the old alike and in this way it's 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 so much like all work in 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 the period of the industrial revolution it's not just that women young children were engaging in sex work they were also going off into the factories it's not just that women were being monitored by police officers who would send them to lock hospitals. They were also being monitored by factory foremen and also being monitored by their husbands. And their husbands were being monitored by other people. And another way that this kind of sums up some of the themes of our of our course is that it shows that the 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 moral dimension to pleasure. Play is not just play. It's not just something that we can set aside. It's something that, that, that comes to define us. A prostitute is not just somebody who does a job. It's not just somebody who enjoys doing a thing. A prostitute has a particular moral valence to it, even though we might want to not have that moral valence stick to the women who do that work. And why? Why is it that, that, that this kind of pleasure, that sexual pleasure, is so different? I don't know. I, I like I said, I'm not a historian of gender and sexuality. I haven't thought very much about these these issues, so I I I, I don't know. But I think I think that in, in, in talking about this, I I, I want to just point out that we we we're touching on a, a a problem that still is live today. Is sex any different than? Than, than other kinds of pastimes. Is sex something sacred between husbands and wives alone? Is it something, you know, even, even, even stricter? Is it something that you should only do to make babies? Or is it something pleasurable? Is it something that you can do with your friends whenever you want that doesn't matter who you do it with, just like it doesn't matter who your tennis partner is? Or is, is, is sex just something like, you know, even 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 more broad is it just a commodity can you sell sex without yourself being changed in the process and how is it that the work that we do why what how, how is it that that makes ourselves and our identity how is it that that just because you sell sex that you are somehow morally tainted like i said i don't know the answers to these questions i haven't even really fully begun to pose them to myself. Um, but this has been, as always, uh, Making of a Historian. Thank you all to you for listening. Thank you to those of you who are mothers-in-law or fathers-in-law or who have suggested this podcast to in-laws. I encourage you, if you have an in-law, tell them about the podcast. They seem to like it. At least my in-laws do. Um, if you like the show, you can also just rate and review us on iTunes or 
wherever you listen to podcasts. You can um, share us on social media, or you can become a member of our Facebook page. Search for Making of Historian and like us. Or, like I said at the top of the show, you can become my patron on Patreon. Go to Patreon or Patreon.com slash Making of Historian and drop me some money persistently so that I can buy my daughter and family nice things. Uh, Thank you to Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. Uh, We will be back uh, either this week with a uh, episode that sums up the whole course or in a week or two uh, where we are going to be resuming our interview series uh, this time with like voices of of the coronavirus. Uh, See you then.